Most of us know you can't trust politicians. But then one comes along who's like, I'm gonna look out for you. Like Jose Wizad. He grew up in a working class Latinx neighborhood in LA. And then he turns on the community that raised him. From Neon Hum Media and LA Taco, this is The Sellout, a podcast about a politician arrested by the FBI for allegedly operating a criminal enterprise out of City Hall. I'm Mariah Castaneda. Subscribe now. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a black teenager dies from a shotgun blast during a traffic stop. Was it really an accident or something worse? We'll talk about the podcast series Mississippi Goddamn from Reveal. Plus, a look at the troubled life of a young Hollywood starlet who died in the presence of her controlling husband. We'll review What Happened, Brittany Murphy, from HBO Max. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Buenas tardes, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, and also scooter stunt driver. My scooter appeared in a public access Halloween special this week, so... I'm adding that to my resume. I heard and I actually saw that, and it's very exciting. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast from iHeart, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Good morning, Rebecca. Yeah, we are taping in the morning this morning, which, by the way, for the record, is not why Kevin sounds this way. Kevin? Oh, I've got some kind of cold, guys. And we should say you were tested. It is not the covid I took two tests this week. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm negative, but uh, <clears throat> I'm going to sound a little rough today. I think. My entire family sounds like that, except for me. Yeah. And they they got they got tested too. It's just hmm. it's going around. Yeah. Hmm. You're like Ira Glass on every other episode of This American Life. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> after not after uh, yeah being secluded from everybody and not getting anything. That's right. You had to go on a plane. Yeah. And be exposed to some people and their germs. And we'll talk about that in the after show, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we have a lot to do today, so we should just get right to it. All right? Okay. All right. Leading off. He knew how to safely handle firearms and driving around with a loaded shotgun. His dad says Billy Joe would have never done that. Never. Let alone grabbing a weapon during a police stop. They can't believe that at all. In 2008, high school football star Billy Joe Johnson was pulled over for speeding in Loosedale, Mississippi. Moments later, the officer radioed that the black teen had killed himself with a shotgun. A grand jury later ruled that Johnson died accidentally while moving the gun and found no wrongdoing by the police. The traffic stop wasn't captured on video and there were no eyewitnesses. What I did know... His family didn't believe the official version, and they felt ignored by the system. His death didn't make any sense to them, and it didn't make any sense to me either. 
Making good on an old promise to look into the story, reporter Al Letson went to Loosedale and re-examined the case file. He found the family's distrust of the official story is rooted in America's long history of violence against people of color and cover-ups by law enforcement in the Deep South. When you guys come along, I felt the same way. That's why I said, if you guys are not going to help us, then I'm not going to give over nothing. Because I don't want to keep doing this over and over and we're not getting nowhere. The PRX investigative podcast Reveal is out with an eight-part series called Mississippi Goddamn, The Ballad of Billy Joe Johnson. Letson, along with reporter Jonathan Jones, pokes at the conclusion the teen's death was an accident. He also places Johnson's story squarely within the reckoning of civil rights and justice in America. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the first three episodes of Mississippi Goddamn. Goddamn. So so if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. That's the way you keep saying it. Mississippi Goddamn. Well, it's how Nina Simone says it in her iconic civil rights era song. I should mention that to listeners. It is a Nina Simone song that this podcast is named after. And I think it a really great framing for the podcast. Speaking of framing, Toby, uh, Al Letson does start the podcast with something a couple of our listeners noted that I liked, but I, I guess a couple of you noted as well, and a couple of our listeners did. He frames it as sort of a, a non-true crime podcast at the start, that he's not going to be exploiting this story for, you know, listens, likes, uh, fame, whatever. I, I don't think that Reveal necessarily does that anyway. How did that strike you, that he sort of started the podcast that way? Why did you like it? I think, I mean, it didn't, I guess it didn't strike me as unnecessary. I think that what... Al was trying to do here was basically say, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess I don't I can't really have an answer for that question, to be completely honest with you, because I, I kind of felt and I, you know, and I think we had a similar thing about the orange tree um, thing where they're like, we're not going to be one of those podcasts that's this, that, the other thing. It's like, just do it. And by hmm. saying by saying I'm, this isn't like a normal truth, you know, there's been plenty of podcasts that we've reviewed that sort of fit his criteria for what he's doing. And I just kind of feel like that kind of disclaimer is, it's not really a slam because I don't think he's singling anybody out or whatever, but I think it's, it's trying to set the podcast apart in a way that it doesn't necessarily need to, or even really necessarily deserve to just based on stuff that's happened in the past. Um, and then the other thing is, if you don't want it to be a true crime podcast, why don't position it that way? You know, you can just make hmm. this a history podcast if if you're like un- uncomfortable with the genre. So I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like dwell on it, but it did seem it was just it's just like a strange off note. And you know, I I think if you listen to you know Connie Walker or Madeline Barron or you know, you'd be like, why are you even saying this? Because this is that that's been the focus of a bunch of really good podcasts um, that I think you'd want to compare yourself to. Hmm. I think maybe it follows up a little bit on the personal experience that Al brings to the beginning of the podcast, Kevin, because that is the opening scene, right? Where he talks about his growing up in Florida and Mm -hmm. each episode of this does start with a big zoom out frame, right? Right. And and when he brings his personal experience, does it to me, doesn't feel like, um, you know, just checking a, a box, an obligatory box of, you know, I have to explain how I'm, uh, why this means something to me. I did like the story about how he found out about the, this this story 
you know, while covering a completely different um, assignment. And his whole talk about, uh, you know, I wanted to do it. And, you know, it just time just slipped away. I pushed as hard as I could and kept checking in on the story from a distance. But ultimately, I lost touch with Glenda. And then life got in the way. I was swamped with work and raising kids. And Billy Joe's story just faded into the background. Which is, you know, as journalists, I think a lot of us can relate to that you see a story and you kind of see the potential, but then other things come along. And while police have cold cases, reporters have cold cases too. And so the fact that he was able to, you know, come back to it, uh, you know, I thought uh, I found that really interesting. Laura, I could relate to that, too. You know, sometimes you meet people and they tell you about, you know, a story and they're like, please do something about this. And in the moment you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to look into that. I'm going to look into that. And then you don't. And mm-hmm. it's like the sort of broken promise that you find yourself like, you know, you have that whole pile of of, you know, papers, ideas. And you look back on it. And you're like, wow, I told that person I do that. And I told that person mm-hmm. I do that. And then, you know, and, and you could imagine, you know, in this case, you know, eight, 10 years passes, like it probably feels like kind of a big broken promise, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, and and I'm sure that was some of the reluctance when he does go back in to, you know, talk with Billy Joe's family members. And, you know, you have the, I think it was the sister who had the police file. And at first, she's not so keen on sharing it or even letting him look at the police file, um, unless he's really there to help them. Because, you know, you do have that big gap in the time from when he first heard about this to when he actually goes back. But, you know, as somebody that's been doing this, like in working in a community where, you know, journalism um, for a long time uh, there, I do have a list uh, like that, you know, and I'm like, OK, these are stories that someday I want to tell. Uh, the time's not right now. But, you know, I can relate to that because there are things that have been on my list for years. And I'm like, I've always wanted to write this. And now I'm finally going to get the chance to do it. But in this um, case where you're coming into, you know, a case that has police investigation and forensics and witness statements. I feel like it's a little harder to go back because, you know, memory is like that. And it is harder for people to recall some of these things. And also, I feel like over those years, that story does sort of take on a life of its own in a way in terms of theories that have been spawned about what people think actually happened. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing I kept thinking about when I first listened to the first episode of this was that I think before I really listened to the second and third episode, I kept thinking like anything could have happened. This, you know, I think that I've changed my mind on it, but like this could have been an accident is the first thing I thought. But it still is a story because it has turned into a legend in the town. And like, why did it turn into a legend? And Toby, this is not a super long ago case. In fact, they have so many of the people that were involved. Some, A lot of Billy Joe's friends, all of his family members, you know, some of his friends, one of his best friends is now a cop in another town. You know, they have the person who did the autopsy. You know, they have a lot of people who were witnesses who were there. And a lot of tape. And one of the pieces of tape that really struck me were the... Um, the football uh, local, like, what is it called? The sports announcer tapes, the play-by-play. Yeah. Tailback Billy Joe Johnson has rushed for nearly 3,000 yards in his first two years on the varsity squad. Larry Shirley was the play-by-play announcer for the local radio station. When you put the film in slow motion, everybody looks like they're running in slow motion except one guy. And that would be Billy Joe. He would look like 
normal speed. Um, and you sort of hear, because it's one thing to hear him described as this like local football star and have people say it, but it's another thing to hear it. It reminded me a lot of that O.J. Simpson documentary, how like everyone else is going in slow motion and he looks like, you know, he's the only person running at full speed. And and the dead endness of this town and how he seemed to be the only one who was going to get out. And that feels like so visceral. I mean, did you get that same sort of sense that like he was different than all the other kids in this town? Yeah. And I think for me, in addition to that, it was, you know, he was going to go to Auburn to play football and Auburn, you know, for people who don't follow college football or whatever, it's like one of the top programs in the country. Like when they talk about him having aspirations to play professional football, like going to play at Auburn is like a route to that. So it shows that it's not, you know, a complete pipe dream. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, which, you know, I assume he'll get to at some point, but hasn't yet, is that, you know, I think for, you know, a teenage black, you know, young man, being a football star is probably about as much social capital as you can get, right? I mean, you're you're sort of a town hero, just, you know, regardless of people's other sort of thoughts about racial things. Kevin, the episodes, uh, episodes two and three are set up with a historical moment, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, somewhat lesser known historical moments, at least for me, especially the Jackson State shootings, which I knew very little about. Um, What do you think of that, like giant zoom out historical setup, then kind of going in, 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 especially episode two, I think, starts out really far away and big. And then we end up at the end, like with this very investigative, you know, in the case sort of ending to that episode. It gets in real, real tight to the case. Does that work for you? Well, yeah, I think he, he continues trying to make the case about why the community would be distrustful of this uh, report. And there are obviously certain... <laughs> There there are certain aspects of that history that are self-evident and don't really need to be explored because we, we just automatically know why. Uh, but to find a couple of things and then, uh, you know, zoom in, I think, is you know what's going to be the basis of it, because a lot of the story is going to be and already has been that um, the family and their friends just find it very hard to believe that when a young man dies in a violent way in the presence of law enforcement that they're dismissing a lot of the potential that the law enforcement officer had something to do with it. Right. Now we, we get the setup for actually, you know, what tends to be a very difficult case to a very difficult premise to disprove, right? That, that the, you know, that something else happened besides the gun going off, right? That it was an accident or, you know, the setup's like, yeah, I guess it's plausible as unlikely. Yeah. But if you want to prove that, you know, the cop took his shotgun and stuck it in his mouth for some reason without a confession from that cop, that's that's hard to do. Right. Right. So I, I think you have to. These are elements that I think are going to build upon. It's an eight part series. So you don't put all your cards out at once. But we're starting to see. You know, through, the, through these first three episodes, where it's going to go, and the idea that yeah, these two reporters are you know, up up against a hard thing that's going something's going to be hard to disprove, right? But they're certainly showing that the avenues were not explored. Mm-hmm. And Laura, 
you know, they talk about like the Occam's razor thing. And I know that I'm going to say it wrong. We're probably going to all sorts of tweets about how I said it wrong. But like, you know, the most likely explanation is the one that mm-hmm. is, you know, true or whatever. Yeah. I hear a uh, young teenage boy uh, dating a white girl in the Deep South pulled over after a pursuit by a cop after leaving her house whose shotgun went off accidentally, um, you know, during a, a traffic stop after he was pursued. That, to me, is not the most likely explanation of what happened to him. It just isn't. I will say the fact that, you know, we all come to this conversation in 2021 with the point of view that we have, uh, of course, you know, our experiences being what they are, um, you know, what do you think, just the very basic fact that this family had to sell fish plates and hire a lawyer in order to obtain the public record police file of what happened to their relative and his death in an ostensibly closed case. Yeah, I think that was bullshit. Um, You know, that that was ridiculous that they were having to have like the benefit fish fry to pay for the um, fee that they had to pay the lawyer to get this case file. But, you know, going back to the way this is laid out, I guess I feel like you know, going way back to this isn't a typical true crime podcast, the way that the story is being told now, I'm still having a hard time drawing a line toward feeling like there's going to be a satisfying conclusion to this in terms of an answer as to what actually happened. And I'm not saying that because I think this doesn't sound sketchy as hell, but it just seems like the wagons are circled and whatever really happened is never going to get out. So I feel like, are we setting ourselves up in a way to to be disappointed because we aren't going to have that resolution that we're looking for with this? You know, because it does, you know, you've got, yes, this traffic stop. You've got the fact that he, the police officer doesn't call for backup or anything like that, um, that, you know, they're having a pursuit and yet um, somebody that he's been pursuing, like, gets out of the vehicle and, like, it's not, like, a bigger scene than it just there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense but i i guess i'm just having a hard time seeing how they're going to resolve this at this point after three episodes because to me i feel like it's more a story of this larger issue of race in the south and how you are treated differently when violent crime occurs like the parents don't even get to identify the body but the football coach does like yeah you know so so there there are things like that, but, um, you know, it, it's just, I, I don't remember that, you know, it, so I, I don't know. I'm curious to see where it's going to go, I guess. Laura, just, I mean, obviously we don't know what happened. We weren't there. Is it more likely that Billy Joe got out of his car after a pursuit or that the cop asked him to get out of his car after a pursuit? I mean, if you hear what his friend, who's now a cop, says, it is more likely that the cop would ask him to get out yes. of his car after a oh, pursuit, Oh, yeah. Right? No, they would be like, get out of it. They would be like, put your hands on the wheel. Correct. Let me see you. Like, get out, come out. You're keeping your hands in the air. Okay, lean over the hood of the car. Put your hands down. We're going to pat you down. Like, that is the scenario that would have played out. So, you know, and and I think, again, it's complicated. There's no, like, cruiser cam. There's no other witnesses. So it's like, you know, we have one narrative of what happened. And Do do we know where his driver's license was? Was it in his wallet when he was dead? Or was it in the hands of the officer who says he was going to run it? Didn't oh, he say he know. was running his driver's license when the when the Sure. Did he have the driver's license? I don't know. 
I mean, if it was still in his wallet, wouldn't that be important? Piece? I mean, there are so many things yeah, that are know, just I like the, the timeline being off, the, the girlfriend saying he knocked on the door That's for five minutes. That's the weirdest minutes, part. Does anybody when get he that? typically went to the trailer in the morning. I mean, there's so many strange things going on here that like just seem, uh, they seem post-constructed. They seem that way mm-hmm. in, a, in a very... You know, I mean, I, I will say the pursuit, the story just seems it just seems like a made. I mean, it just seems that way. Mm-hmm. It just does not seem the way that that would have gone, especially a teenage boy who knows what the landscape of the of the of, you know, being pulled over by the police looks like in 2008. We're not talking about something that happened in 1978. We're talking about 2008. Um, Toby, I just want to talk about a couple of the scenes here because, uh, you know, you sent me a note about sort of the actual construction of the scenes, the writing of the scenes, but also the sort of metaphorical take on the scenes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like the writing, the writing seems more like a magazine type writing than it does podcast type writing. Like he does, you know, he uses like these metaphors and, you know, I think at one point he says something like standing in the sweltering heat of a Mississippi summer. I felt the history of this country, like the humidity in the air. It was all around me from the ghosts of the enslaved black people who worked the land to the shadows cast by the trees, silent monuments to the victims of lynching to right now. You know, that was a little unusual and it's times it felt a little audio bookish to me. Um, But then he also has these like sort of beautiful scenes that I feel like are kind of metaphors in and of themselves. And I, you know, we, we touched upon it a second ago, but there's the scene uh, where Billy Joe, the crime scene. Wallace is a black law enforcement officer. He knows exactly what the optics of this scene are. A black teen dead on the ground. A white police officer pulled him over. Most of the white people are inside the police line. Most of the black people are outside of it, cordoned off with no voice. And the white people are on the inside of the police cordon. And the black people, including Billy Joe's parents, are on the outside. And... That seems to me to get to the point that he's making in a in a in a sort of much more powerful way than in some of the the writing, which again, I mean, it's 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 good writing, but it's just it's just funny to hear in a podcast because, like, even though you know people are reading scripts and stuff, I I feel like most make more of a, a attempt to make it sound as though you're you're having a conversation. Um, and if he can come up with those kind of metaphors on the fly, you know, that's awesome. Um, hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not really a real dig at, at it. It's, just, I guess it's part of what he was talking about. It's just a different kind of podcast. And in this case, it's, you know, the, the writing is a little more writerly and he's doing hmm. a little more reading rather than talking, I guess. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that Al Letson was a poet before he was a journalist. Well, there you go. Mm. (laughs) This is where it's worth making that note. Um, Kevin, one thing that I said to you uh, when we were listening to this, because we were listening to it at the same time, but separately on the airplane on the way back from our vacation, Mm -hmm. is that one thing of note differentiator between this and a podcast like In the Dark, I don't think we've heard too many punchable people yet in this podcast, even the people who are necessarily like involved in the case that could be seen as adversarial. Uh, the person to the first autopsy whose findings may have been wrong. They don't sound like necessarily bad actors, unreasonable people unwilling to change their mind. 
Do you agree with that? Like, is that something that I found is that it's like that seems like the approach here is not to go at them and say, like, hey, well, you, you know, you did this wrong. You did this wrong. It seems like, hey, what do you think of this? Well, I think sometimes you get, you know, you draw more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. Right. And, you know, these are a bunch of serious investigative journalists. Right. And so. You know, the idea, I obviously like the coroner, which she would be on her back foot if they come, you know, out guns blazing. And in the end, you know, they get her to kind of, you know, very thoughtfully say, yeah, you know, I, uh, it, it might be worth, you know, looking at again because of th- this or that evidence. You know, anytime like you have uh, some conflict in any kind of story, right? I always put it to, like to the James Bond villain. You have to believe that the villain can actually defeat James Bond. Mm. And so our setup here is that the system is up against uh, Al and JJ. And so right now, I mean, I think and Laura said this in episode three. It seems like, yeah, there's no way they're going to beat this. So at the end, if they are able to come up with something of significance, something that changes the narrative in a significant way, then that's going to be a really satisfying narrative because it feels like there's there's no hope of that. Mm. So if in the end they provide some hope, that's great. If in the end it's, you know, who's Billy Joe Johnson? He's all of us. If it's one of those Tim Kono endings, <laughs> it's going to be really disappointing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We got some root talk though, right? Yeah, yeah. And and like root talk that wasn't just performative. Like, yeah, good oh, early morning a, root talk. Yeah, again, trying to time out, um, you, you know, how, how long it took to get from here to there. and So that's where JJ and I start, at Billy Joe's trailer at 5.11 a.m. All right, starting now. Stopwatch starting. We pull out and head towards the highway. Proceed to the route. It's early, so there isn't a lot of traffic. Turn right onto Deep Creek Road. I mean, one of the most interesting things, though, was that the police officer had lights on for, what, a mile and a half? Mm. You know, that's, uh, if that is true, Mm -hmm. and it can be, you know, that's, yeah, that's peculiar. Why wouldn't Billy Joe have pulled over? Maybe he pulled over as soon as they went on, but it wasn't a mile and a half back. I I don't know. There is a lot, like you say, that's sketchy about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the official report is wrong. And so that's what they are up against. Right. And, and they've, they've, they've basically said that. So I, I don't want to sound like, you know, another one of those townspeople who just like, you know, oh, well, it's. Uh, oh, this case is sus as hell. You know that it is. Oh, yeah, it's sus as hell. <laughs> it's sus as hell. Yeah, I think so, that we yeah, all agree so that we this are case really, is sus as hell. Yeah, so we are really pulling for these journalists to come up with something yeah. other than the system sucks. But you already know the system sucks. Yeah, yes. As Tucker Carrington being in this podcast proves, the system does actually suck. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out this new series from the PRX podcast, Reveal? That is how you find it. Go to the Reveal feed to look for the new series, Mississippi Goddamn, reported by the Reveal host, Al Letson himself. Laura Bricker, what do you think? We're only three episodes in. Maybe we should perhaps revisit this later. Who knows? Thumbs up, thumbs down so far for Mississippi Goddamn from Reveal. Huh. So I'm going to go thumbs up and I'm going to, you know, talk about who I think would like this podcast um, because I don't think it's for everybody. I think if you are looking for, and he admits this is not a typical true crime podcast in the sense of the way it's set up. This to me is more of a larger study of race and crime in the South and old habits and old um, practices among law enforcement. And, And if you want, a story that's going to take 
a case and put it in that larger context and sort of examine it in a way that's very reflective and drawn out, this is a podcast for you. If you're looking for a little bit more um, straightforward uh, crime recap moving along, this is not the podcast for you. Toby Ball. So I feel like a lot of times I give things thumbs up and I have like a lot of trepidation about whether it's going to turn out like the ending's going to turn out well. So in this case, I'm kind of doing the opposite. You know, I, I, I basically like the first few episodes, although I'm a little lukewarm on them. I have more confidence that the remainder of the series is going to be good uh, just because I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel as though the storytelling is strong enough that they would, you know, be building to something. So I, with that piece of confidence in mind, I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up. You know, I, I plan on listening to at least a few more episodes, which again, is not something I do all the time. I think the story is interesting. I mean, we're we're back in Mississippi, right? So um, taking a look at that system, I think it's interesting. So yeah, thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm also going thumbs up, but also sort of with that caveat, maybe we are listening to it too soon in the narrative to get a real feel for it. But the storytelling is strong. It's an interesting case. And sort of what kind of tips their hand here is that reveal that does investigative stories all the time felt the need to make an eight part series out of this particular story. So it kind of signals to me that there's going to be, you know, that there ought to be a big finish to this. But I do feel like they're not going to be able to land the plane because it just seems so such a, a hard task to accomplish. So if they can, like, then it's like a super thumbs up. Yeah. Um, it sort of signals that we're going in a direction for a really satisfying podcast. But where we are at this moment, we're kind of left in limbo as we see the pieces being put together. Yep. Let's see when you turn over all the cards where we are. But thumbs up. Yeah, I'm going to give this a big thumbs up. And I will say a little part of my thumbs up here is underscored by my bias for this team. Uh, the Reveal team has won so many awards for so many of their series, including a series called American Rehab, which came out a year or two ago, which won just like pretty much every journalism award in the world. Uh, and, you know, Al, I don't think is the kind of host and I don't think this is the kind of team that would say, hey, let's just do a project because it would be fun. Um, so that is sort of underscoring a big part of my big thumbs up here. But also, I think there is something, as Toby said, that I don't typically love, but I do love it here because I think the right person is doing it. The sort of poetic nature of this and the way that it's written and constructed feels different to me. The episodes are you know, the sort of the 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 intentional zoom in is really lovely. What I really love that feels urgent and new to me is the inclusion of all of these voices that were present at the time. You know, we're not bringing in, you know, cold analysts from 10,000 miles away as the primary sources in the podcast. We got like Billy Joe's best friend. We've got like Billy Joe's, you know, other best friend who's now a coach at the high school where he used to go. You know, we have uh, his sister, his parents. Uh, we have the person who performed his autopsy. I really think we've got a lot here. And I've heard enough voices that were present at the time that I feel the story is going somewhere already. Um, so I really it gets like the award it. for the longest title, right? I mean, goddamn. No, it's reveal. Mississippi, goddamn. The, the ballad, ballad of Billy, Billy Joe. Joe yeah, yeah. Lots of words there to scroll across my screen. So yeah, <laughs> big thumbs up for me so far, and I am going to continue listening. And you know what? If it goes the other way, I will proudly come out and say so on the podcast. So big thumbs up for me so far for Mississippi, goddamn from Reveal. 
All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section. Business section. Uh, I know you don't have much of a voice, so I'm going to spare you a lot of talk. What do we got going on our Patreon today, Kevin? The Crime Writers on After Show. We're going to talk about our trip to Mexico. And the things that we watched and listened to, including a thing that Toby made me watch that I want to debrief debrief with him real quick. What was it? It was a weird thing about Dune. (laughs) Dune. It was wild. It was totally wild and uh, very in the vein of something Toby would like. And I want to give him feedback about a thing that he told me to watch. And I also want to talk a little bit about... My Journey Finishing, Dead on Deadline, by Laura Bricker. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're going to be doing all the talking. What else have we got, Kevin? Well, we have a new episode this week coming out of Married with Podcast. We're going to be answering a question from someone who who has some concerns about the way her daughter's new boyfriend yeah. is engaging with their younger child. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have some concerns, too. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's, I think it's warranted. Laura Bricker is already out with the, the latest Leave it to Bricker, where she's exploring the secret caves and tunnels of her quaint town of Exeter, New Hampshire. And that's not a metaphor. They are literally caves and tunnels. They're little caves and tunnels. <laughs> and lastly, on Wednesday evening, Toby will be uh, recording the new episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, postponed from the previous week. And uh, if you are a member of Crime Writers on Nation, you can watch that live taping, even take part. Toby, remind us again, the book and your guests. Uh, it's called Beast in View by Margaret Millar. And it's going to be with Alex Segura and Kimberly from Date with Dateline. Hmm. I just want to let you know, Toby, I finished A Line to Kill, so I'm ready for my episode of Deep Dive. I'm nice. ready. That's two months from now. So oh, I'm going to have to read it again. I hope you took a lot of Damn notes it. so you remember what to say. <laughs> Didn't take a single note. I'm going to have well, to listen to it again. All right. <laughs> It'll be even better the second time. All right, Kevin, and I should say, for anyone who's interested in all of our goings-on, including all the behind-the-scenes going on here at Crime Writers On, sign up for our newsletter at CrimeWritersOn.com. It's free, and it is awesome. You know what's special about this week? What's special about this week? New merch. New merch? What do we got? Okay, it's because because of the success yes. of the previous Crime Writers On leggings. Yes, which are still available, by the way. Yes. And selling like hotcakes. Oh, we have... Yep, there we go. We have a new set of leggings. They are the Lara Rowe. Lara Rowe? Yes, Lara Rowe leggings. Uh, 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 special Lara, Lara Bricker edition, Lara yeah, Rowe special leggings? special Lara, yeah. So if you want Lara Bricker's cartoon face. All over all your legs? And your butt, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Lara Rowe. I wore my Crime Writers on leggings at the airport. I wore my Crime Writers on leggings in Mexico. I saw Rabia uh, Chaudhary wearing her Crime Writers on leggings on Twitter. They are selling like hotcakes. They like butter, and they are amazing. Keep that link to the Crime Writers on leggings in the newsletter. They're amazing. They're amazing. All right, Kevin, to give you a break from uh, having to use your voice anymore, I'm going Mm -hmm. to announce our Patreon patron saints of this week. Is that okay? Excellent, excellent. They are Claire Cantwell and Kristen Williams. Bless you. And thanks for supporting us on Patreon, everyone. Go head on over to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And thus ends the, the business, business section. section. Moving on. The sudden death in 2009 of actress Brittany Murphy shocked Hollywood. She had gone from child star to it girl with roles in films like Clueless and Eight Mile. When the 32-year-old collapsed at home in the presence of her mother and husband, tabloid speculation began. The chatter among us was overdose. I mean, it seemed like the only logical thing for someone that young in Hollywood. 
Brittany had changed physically, noticeably. She was much thinner. We thought, well, she went too far. There were red flags in Brittany's marriage to the much older screenwriter Simon Monjack. She had ignored his reputation as a grifter and found herself personally and professionally isolated as Monjack controlled every part of her life. If it wasn't for Simon Monjack, there's every chance Brittany Murphy would still be alive. And it ultimately is like a very banal story. It's just, it really isn't a huge mystery. It's just very simple. A predator targeting someone at their most vulnerable. It was the perfect storm. The HBO Max two-part series, What Happened, Brittany Murphy, recalls the actor's Hollywood climb and subsequent fatal backslide during her marriage to a gold-digging Svengali. It also features true crime talking heads who don't believe the official cause of death and traffic in innuendo. We are going to be talking about plot points for What Happened, Brittany Murphy. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Now, Laura, uh, we do have a very classic sort of true crime setup here to what ends up kind of being like an almost like hybrid Hollywood tell all slash true crime slash in-depth documentary. Really kind of a hybrid piece of media here. What do you think of the setup going into this? Um, Well, I liked the initial setup where we go in and it starts right off with like a 911 call. So we start, you know, with the action right up front with her mother calling 911 She's stopped breathing. Um, you're hearing, you know, sort of the emotion that's part of that moment, the response that's happening at that moment. And, you know, then we have these sort of scenes that are put through, you know, kind of superimposed there of like films that Brittany Murphy was in. And, you know, then there's there's like a, a clip of Marilyn Monroe. So the setup felt, you know, I felt like that was a good lead in. I felt like, though, as it continued with these sort of... Um, you know, scenes, you know, I was amazed at the amount of footage they could find of Brittany Murphy in various films that was so parallel to all of the dysfunction and sadness that happened in the end of her life. Um, and I felt like that got a little exploitive. Yeah, because let's face yeah. it, Toby, she was playing characters in movies. These were not actually parallels to her own life that she was portraying in these films. She was being paid as an actress to play characters in movies like Girl Interrupted like Clueless, like Eight Mile, and they were using scenes from films to illustrate what real people were saying was happening in her real life. I didn't like that part of this film. In a a, a film, which I should say, otherwise, I was surprised by how much I did like, that I was not a fan of. What did you think about that? I cringed every time. And, and, you know, and it gets even worse as it goes on as as her life kind of spirals and they're showing clips from i i can't even remember what the name is but there's one where i think she's like in prison or something and she's not some, she's got some secret and she's got this makeup that makes her look really gaunt and she's like freaking out and uh it just seemed way 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 off for what you should do and then there's even a point at which they have her in a movie saying that she feels like she's about to die or something. And they, they cue that up with her actually dying. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know who came up with that idea, but it wasn't a great idea to begin with. And then when they saw how it actually played out, I can't believe that there wasn't somebody who was like, maybe we should just not do this. Um, yeah. Because, because for me, it was, it was like really uncomfortable most of the time and just didn't seem like if you're actually trying to honor her, uh, I think showing her 
acting, <laughs> the way she's acting in these sort of, you know, late sort of B level movies is not, it's not really a very good way of honoring her life uh, as a way of portraying like the obvious difficulties that she was having. Well, I will say that's different to me. So I actually didn't mind when they, so there's one thing to show like when she was having troubles in her life and, you know, sort of what happened to her career. I mean, it's one thing to show, you know, the the movies near sort of the end of her career when, you know, we're talking about her mm-hmm. decline and seeing that, you know, she had been in these A-level movies and then, you know, that, that one movie where she was almost let go um, mm-hmm. and seeing those cuts and the behind the scene or not being able to remember her lines. That's different, I think, than seeing her and Girl Interrupted talking about wanting to die when she wasn't mentally healthy. I mean, there's a difference there, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I, I I actually liked the the clips. Um, I, I don't know why. I just I just felt like uh, they yeah they, they I mean they they went along with sort of what was going on in her life. I certainly didn't you know read it as sort of being uh, prescient about you know where her life was going, but it also served the purpose of uh, reemphasizing the breadth of her dramatic work because I, I certainly looking back didn't think of, you know, Brittany Murphy as having like any kind of gravitas, right? Really? No, no, yeah. that she was, you know, this, you know, on her way to being an A-list actress or anything. And now she was were, an A-list actress, yeah. Was she though? I yeah, mean, for a time she was. Okay, all right. Uh, see, I don't remember her that way, but I can certainly see, you know, part of like why that career path was you know, maybe diverted, and that's the reason why I don't see her that way. She was obviously in some great movies, had some great roles. You know, I guess she because she, she is a little quirky. But look, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't think I was going to like this documentary, but I, you know, I kind of did. Yeah, I, I did too. But there was one other part that I really hated, and I think that Laura hated too, and I'm guessing Toby may have hated because it was provided without context, very much like the Cecil Hotel documentary provided oh. it without context. Yeah, we saw these gross youtubers like let's talk about britney murphy's death while you watch me put on my makeup oh, i want to poke them in the eye with their mascara <laughs> i fucking hated them oh my god why do you just want to settle for she died of pneumonia oh well it just doesn't make sense her death was not accidental and her husband's was not accidental i believe they both were targeted i think that their autopsies were forged Something happened. Someone must have bribed someone. I mean, I'm I'm guessing, Laura, the point of that was to illustrate how gross it is, right? That Mm -hmm. Internet is speculating about Brittany Mm -hmm. Murphy's death and all these conspiracy theories. We're not told or even signaled in any way that that's the point. And I'm not saying like I'm stupid and like I needed that signal. Yeah. But I'm smart. But Mm -hmm. there was so the opposite of signaling that that for the whole first episode of this, I'm like, why the hell are we even being forced to watch these people? Did you have that same feeling? Yes. And I was just like, I felt like we had good voices to talk about her. And, you know, we had the woman that worked with her. I can't remember. Was it King of the Hill? Kathy and Jimmy? Yeah. So we, we had some good voices to talk about her that actually could like add some context that was helpful and helped bring the story together. And then we have these YouTubers who I just, I hated. And I understood why they were there, but I guess show them once you do not need to keep showing them like they are actually a credible source of information. I mean, I felt like, oh, look, it's these stupid YouTubers again. Like, no, we're we're done with these people. Why, why are you 
cheapening this show and this documentary by continuing to put them in there with no context as if they were actually authorities on what happened. But I mean, and and it's just, it was crazy. And I I got the point, but I feel like less is more here. We don't need to keep seeing these people. Toby agrees. Well, do you agree, Toby? I I sort of do. Like, I I think they got too much airtime. I do. The only thing that, and they didn't connect the dots and maybe they didn't need to, but in the end, when you find out what happened and it's so kind of, it has nothing to do with any of that stuff that I feel as though it was a sort of, you know, a pretty stark rebuttal to what they were saying. I mean, it kind of exposes them. And then there's that weird little moment where they show one of them and then they quickly flip to Brittany Murphy in one of her movies, like giving the finger to the camera, um, mm. which I guess that was them connecting the dots. Uh, yeah. It was it was also like super weird, in my opinion. But it was also a clip, Toby, not to interrupt, clip, Toby, there was also a clip from one of the movies where she says, why don't you just let me die? Can't you just let me die? Oh, yeah. Which I think is, is yeah. you know, directed at, you know, those talking heads, right? Yeah. But, I, you know, again, I just, I, I don't, like what, what Rebecca was saying, like, I don't, I thought actually some of the clips of her on set as she was having problems were you know, sort of revealing and stuff and interesting. It was really just the clips from the the finished movies that they were using to kind of show. And I'm sorry, these movies are not trying to portray something close to reality. Like they're, right. they're entertainments. And so having her with like all this dark makeup under her eyes and looking super gaunt and crazy uh, as being illustrative of, of her like actual real world problems to me was kind of putting a cartoony face on it rather than something that was kind of realistic, which I think was far better illustrated by like the conditions of her house, which, you know, I I think pointed towards some like huge dysfunction. I mean that, you know, it, it, it was like a rich person's, you know, hoarding house, you know, it's just stuff everywhere. You know, I think the difference between using those YouTubers uh, in Hotel Cecil and this one is that they both use them in a way that make us really have disdain for them. Yeah. I think the difference with Hotel Cecil is in the end, the clips that they were using were taken out of context that a lot of those people were summarizing the case. They're supposed to be good guys. And at the very end, yeah. we hear them talking about how, no, it was all conspiracy theory. Uh, where in this case, you know, I think that we're supposed to on the face, you know, believe that you know that they're vapid yeah and you know they're going to talk about true crime while i do my makeup oh my god because that's the format of my my youtube thing but there's this really unlikely connection between these two reviews yeah which is that they both deal with a death investigation and an autopsy whose results are not nefarious Mm. and in both cases you have groups that don't believe them right and in the first case there seems to be a historical context. It's sus as hell. You know, that, well, they're both sus as hell right. if you look at them a certain way, right? right? right. So in one, there's, you know, the, the stakes are different. There is a historical context which makes us distrust that result. In this one, as banal as it really is, you know, the question is, did you actually die of, of pneumonia? The larger question is, how could that happen in this day and age? And why didn't people do something that really this was preventable? But you also have this case where now you've got this group of people, you know, who may say it in a, you know, 
a rather, <laughs> you know, in a, in a rather dramatic way. But they don't believe that that either. And you can see where those two stories sort of verge from there. But they, that's an unusual parallel between the two of them. Toby, I think one of the reasons why the flaws in this stick out so much is because the sourcing in it is so surprisingly amazing. They have Kathy Jimmy, famous actress, Amy Heckerling, who made Clueless, a uh, really famous movie writer, director, by the way. Clueless is one of my all-time favorite movies. If it's not one of yours, fair listener, uh, don't at me. Taryn Manning, <laughs> another great, really well-known actress. Orange is the New Black, also one of her co-stars in 8 Mile. Uh, we, have a, we have her agent. We have her childhood best friend. Uh, we have multiple journalists. We have the coroner who performed her autopsy. Mm-hmm. We have two very famous Hollywood gossip columnists, Ted Casablanca and Perez Hilton. Uh, we have Simon's mother and brother. We have Simon's ex. We have really, like, the sources top to bottom, yeah, right. all the way up and down, which is surprising to me. Like, this was a very earnestly made film, well-sourced. Were you surprised to see so many heavy hitters in this, what is essentially like a Hollywood tragedy biopic, Toby? I'll confess to, uh, first of all, not recognizing that some of these people were heavy hitters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen Clueless, Toby? I no, but uh, uh. but I tell you, I thought what's her name, Amy Heckerling. Yeah, I thought she was amazing. Like I would, she she was super super interesting. I felt like just about everybody else said what I was expecting them to say. Like, I, I feel like they had all these people who were the right people to talk to, but nobody really had much insight beyond sort of the obvious arc of the story. You know, in the in the end, I kept waiting. I'm like, is somebody going to, like, tell me something that I couldn't have, like, written for them in a script just based on what little I know? And it was Amy Heckerling. And then there was a story that the guy told about being at that dinner with Simon Monjack before he was with Brittany and, and he was talking about how he was a billionaire and he had that shark fin treatment and he collects Ferraris or whatever. And he's like, it turned out it was all a lie. One of the ways that Simon legitimized those lies was by bringing a lovely girl into the equation. That was the cloak. And it was perfect because she believed the lies too. So he lived off this girl that had worked her heart out for every penny she had. Like that guy, like he had that interview and he comes on a little bit later. Like he was kind of interesting. I think almost everybody else said some aspect of watching her like go from being this bright, kind of quirky, like not completely Hollywood, you know, very kind person. And then, you know, meet Simon Monjack after some, you know, heartache and then going into this, going into this spiral and I guess the other person who was kind of interesting was the, the coroner who's kind of, well, there's two coroners, right? I mean, there's like bad coroner who's like, mm. you know, thinks he's Quincy and, you know, he's suspicious of this, that, and the other thing. And then there's the the woman coroner who's just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, you can say that. But when I actually did the autopsy, there weren't mushroom spores, you know? When I did the autopsy, you know, I cut off pieces of her lung and they sank. So I thought there was a lot of sort of, you know, the old sound and fury signifying nothing. Like they had a lot of good interviews, but not a whole lot came out of them. Yeah. Uh, Toby Clueless is a modern day Jane Austen retelling Emma Pride and Prejudice situation. 
you must watch it immediately. Amy Heckerling is an incredible writer-director. Can we just say how, like, young Jeremy Sisto looked then and how old he looks now? Can we and then, talk about how and Paul, Paul Rudd, Rudd looks exactly the same? Exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. No change at all. All right, Laura, let's talk a little bit about what happened here because... The pneumonia thing is weird. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, we we get we had a very straightforward explanation for uh, Brittany's mm-hmm. death. She mm-hmm. was starving. Uh, she mm-hmm. was using lots of substances, and which, by the way, um, you know, as somebody who's known plenty of people with eating disorders, using lots of substances and eating disorders sometimes do go together. And Hollywood and all that stuff kind of piled in. She's living with somebody very controlling. They obviously had mental health issues. They were living basically like hoarders when you see their house. Mm-hmm. And she was sick and wasn't being treated for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it very strange, though, that he also died of pneumonia uh, later, a few months later? I mean, obviously, when the mold thing came up, I was like, oh, that's it. But that wasn't it. It's a very strange sort of set of circumstances on its face. You do kind of understand at least why some of the speculation uh, arose, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I think, though, that I guess my question is, did we actually learn anything that we didn't know before about what happened yeah. to both of these people? Um, you know, like, why are we hearing this now? What happened to Brittany? Um you know, this happened in 2009. I mean, this is this is a while ago. So this isn't new information. But I think, I mean, I feel like they missed a bit of an opportunity to take a deeper dive into this culture of Hollywood that allowed somebody to get to this point because of the way that they are, you know, talking about how she looks and she has to look like this if she wants to get no, more parts in the movie. And and really, I, I would feel, you know, just in watching this, I guess my sense is that her self-esteem is just being eroded and eroded. And then she gets hooked up with this Simon who's totally controlling, clearly got issues. And the fact that they both die in the same way, I think is just sort of indicative of the dysfunction that dominated their relationship in terms of living in this house where there was clearly, like you said, a hoarding situation going on, abusing prescription drugs. There's clearly a very strange dynamic with Simon and her mother after she dies. So I think it's just the bigger picture of this, uh, you know, drug abuse, mental illness that permeated this relationship. And in hindsight, it's probably not surprising that he died the same way. But I mean, you know, when you're doing your makeup on YouTube, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you come up with something. (laughs) Kevin, we do meet Simon's ex here, mm-hmm. and we do hear, as Toby said, from this other guy who was duped by him, very clear, he's very fucking good at what he does. Yeah, you know, he, he I think, was the most interesting part of the documentaries. If somebody that you didn't know was kind of in the shadows, and, you know, his reputation as uh, a grifter, you know, was, was pretty well known already in Hollywood. And so that character study and the look at, you know, the dynamics of their relationship, why she was looking for love. And, you know, you might say it's the daddy issue thing. It's a you know pop psychology uh, analysis. But, you know, other people seem to back that up. Uh, I, it's because it's obvious that, you know, it wasn't like uh, like a John Belushi case where she just overdosed on a bunch of cocaine. It was the controlling, slowly destructive nature of that relationship which was her physical undoing. So that part was really interesting. I keep thinking about the title because it's what happened, comma, Brittany Murphy. Not what happened to Brittany Murphy. Or what happened, colon, Brittany Murphy, right? So they're posing the question, it seems, to Brittany Murphy. Which is weird. Right, so is she answering the question herself? Like, is her life answering the question of her death? 
these are little side things we always talk about on Crime Writers on. Um, you know, I don't know really where they're going with that. What are they trying to say? I almost felt like his ex uh, was kind of the heart of the film and that she was buried a little bit in the back. I don't know if she's the heart of the film about Brittany Murphy. Well, but she's the heart she, of the part she, about Simon, right? She, she had some interesting, important context. Because she's clearly, it reminded me a lot of like the Dirty John, Dr. Death uh, 3 kind of conversations we've had. Simon tearfully told me one night after I would not make love with him that he had spinal cancer and that he was going to have to go to have this shark cartilage treatment in Monaco. So, of course, I break down because the love of my life has cancer. I find out all of a sudden and everything changes. And then we have sex. So he got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. It proves that someone is really freaking great at being a grifter when he can attract these very well-to-do, very normal, very successful, very smart people, dupe them, and they can still be sad about it years later, even though they know he's a bad actor, right? Tell them they got spinal cancer so they can get sex. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, she basically said he sexually assaulted her like over and mm. over again, you know, and, you know, and his mother is defending him. He obviously still has his mother, you know, in his thrall, even though he died. Well, I think her, the mother seemed to be pretty wide eyed and sober about who he was somewhat somewhat for sure um but yeah i mean it's another sort of case and uh and laura to your comment about britney's mother i don't think their dynamic was weird i think he was controlling her as well i mean i just think that's he's good at it right like well it was it was weird when you saw it on larry king i think but i think that was just a really bizarre window into this world after she died yeah yeah and Toby, just one quick last thing. Isn't it not in his interest to screw her career over when what it is he's really after is money? Yeah, the whole thing was weird. I mean, I think asking him to act logically based on everything else we know about him is probably a little bit much. But you can see, like, he, he wants to control her up until a point where it where it starts to be a problem. And I don't think he understood where that line was. But the, the one director's story about... How I went outside and said loudly enough for her to hear him to hear that they're going to have to get somebody to replace her. And then he came up and was like, "No, no, man, we'll make this work." I mean, I just don't think he understood or was capable yeah. of kind of understanding sort of the 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 limits or the or the you know the way in which his exercise of his sort of power over her was alienating to other people. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, uh, should they check out the two-part series, What Happened, Brittany Murphy? It's on HBO Max, and it's about the life and death of actress Brittany Murphy. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary? Oof. Um, this is one of those times I wish I could bring back like a thumb sideways because, you, you know, can. I watched- You can. I can't. I can. Oh, I can? It. Okay. Yeah. I'm going thumb sideways on this because- you know, I watched it. It didn't take that. I mean, it was like two episodes and, and I watched it all at once. And I was like, OK, um, you know, if you didn't know a lot about how Brittany Murphy died and you watch this, you're going to you're going to get up to speed. But I feel like it it's sort of the the title. What happened to Brittany? Like, didn't we already know what happened to Brittany when this documentary started? So, like, that wasn't a big mystery. Like the information came out back in 2009. Um, and I think they did miss an opportunity, you know, it's kind of very similar to that Britney Spears documentary we watched where, you know, you have these young women and the effect of Hollywood on them when they have some underlying mental illness. And, you know, I think there could have been like maybe a, a, a deeper picture of that. And there was, you know, but overall, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. 
you know, that's where I'm at at this. Toby Ball. Yeah. So, I mean, Brittany Murphy, like it really, I, I agree with Kevin. It seems like it's more sort of about Simon Monjack and his effect on Brittany Murphy uh, and and all that. He actually reminds me a little bit of Ian Bailey from uh, West Cork. Mm. Uh, oh, another okay. sort of self-mythologizing, manipulative guy. I'm sort of a moderate thumbs down. I just feel like for this story, which we've heard before, not Brittany Murphy in particular, but controlling white dudes, I, there's just there's just better stuff out there that you can you can listen to. I thought some of it was sort of borderline offensive, and then parts of it were were kind of interesting. I mean, it's not a disaster, but I, I just I I don't feel like I can really recommend it. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm, I'm a mild thumbs up. Um, I did not think this was going to be substantive. You know, I heard some stuff about it being very exploitive. You know, the opening scene with the 911 call probably was a little too intimate. But beyond that, I, I found it very interesting. I, as someone's you know career that I thought I knew about, but I didn't. It's not a true crime in the traditional sense. But as far as, you know, looking at a bad relationship that contributed to a, you know, fatal outcome, I also found that kind of interesting. So I think for some folks that are not looking for maybe, you know, the staircase, but, you know, looking for a story that is still compelling, I'd say, you know, go for it. I'm going to give it a mild thumbs up, too. I will warn listeners that there are some exploitative parts. I do think the use of some of the film clips in this is exploitative. I do not like Perez Hilton's apology tour. I think he, the guy just needs to stop it. Uh, we get it. You're on apology tour, Perez Hilton. But like you, we get it. Just stop doing the apology tour thing. I think it's worth watching for Amy Heckerling's interview, for Kathy and Jimmy's interview, for Taryn Manning's interview, and for all the journalists and sources we hear here. That is the strongest part of the film. And that, for me, is why it tips the scales. Uh, if you can sort of close one eye during the more exploitative parts mm-hmm. and, 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 and really listen to the interviews and the profile of uh, Simon, the bad doer here. I do think there's something to learn here from these um, con men stories only because we have a history of blaming women, we have a history of blaming victims for these stories. And as Toby pointed out, uh, this very smart female coroner did this very straightforward autopsy. No one freaking believed her either. So um, if nothing else, the canon of believing women needs to be built upon. So um, yeah, mild thumbs up for me for what happened, Brittany Murphy. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Wise men say... Only fools steal a bust of Elvis from a West Peoria saloon. (laughs) The owner of Jimmy's says someone thought, quote, it's now or never and walked off with their bust of the king, which has sat on the bar for 15 years, right next to the straws and Mm. napkins. The statuette of Elvis was obtained at a garage sale for $20. They also have a jar of those like weird pickled eggs. (laughs) Jimmy Spears didn't want to bother police with the theft, but his Facebook post caught the attention of the local paper. He's asking that hound dog, don't be cruel and please return to sender. Panel, it looks like Elvis has left the building. Where is the king now? Laura Bricker, what do you think? I think it should surprise nobody that Elvis is in Exeter, New Hampshire. In fact, I met him here once. He's allegedly dead now, the Elvis I met, but I don't know. He might not actually be dead. He might be hiding in one of the subterranean tunnels that I am investigating, and <laughs> perhaps I will find him there. Mm. Toby Ball, what do you think? Where is the king now? I was thinking the statuette's pro- got to be on sitting on somebody's toilet tank, right? 
<laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Uh, well, he's down at the end of Lonely Street at the Heartbreak Hotel. You don't think he's like in the peanut butter, banana, and bacon section at the grocery store? He, he might be posing for a, a portrait in velvet. Ah, he's not wearing a cape down there at the cape store? I forgot to mention, is it young Elvis or old Elvis? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't hear that. You guys have a cape store in Hopkinton? <laughs> yeah, we do. What? We wow. should probably end it on that. No, but before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> Um, we we have a really great ad for a cat, and this comes to us from Regina Lee, who sent, knows I love the orange tabbies, and so the uh, subject is orange tabby up for grabs in Los Angeles, and here is the mm. ad. Does anyone want my cat? You're probably wondering, why would you want to give your cat away? Well, let me tell you, I don't like him. We've known each other for 15 <laughs> years, and I think I've seen enough. He's not nice to me or my kids. Maybe he'll be nice to you. I'm evolved enough to recognize the problem could lie with me, which is why I want you to rescue him from me. He deserves to be happy. I certainly do. <laughs> I think our relationship has run its course when your therapist says, and how did things go with your cat this week? It's not that he's a bad cat and there are no bad animals. He's just an asshole. But he's not bad. Not in a conventional serial killer way. Just like in a you shouldn't date that person kind of way. So thank you, Regina, the 15-year-old tabby. Um, I'm not going to take him because he does sound like an asshole, but maybe someone out in Los Angeles might. Well, I hope mm. he has a good home until he gets a new home and he doesn't just, you know, find himself without a home because that's no good. No. But it is nice of this person to look for a good match for the cat that they hate. She wants to divorce her cat she after does. 15 years. She yeah. does. Yeah. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it just doesn't work out. All right. Yeah. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you to find a new home for their orange cat that they don't like, how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, how can folks find you and wish you better health next week? I'm at Kevin. I'm at, <laughs> I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. We also have a regular old Facebook page. Just look for the page and then click join the group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you'll get the Crime Writers On after show married with podcast Laura Bricker's leave it to Bricker podcast and Toby Ball's deep dive book club podcasts our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett the executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis Mississippi studio otherwise known as Studio C the closet in our New Hampshire basement where Kevin and I practice our dance moves to roll in with the homies. That's a that's a clueless reference, Toby, just it in is. case you didn't know. Yeah. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. That was really good, Kevin. So yeah, that's a that's another sort of interesting aspect of this. Um uh, full stop. <laughs> Morning is not my moment. No, no, no. Total, totally fine. Totally fine. Partners in, in crime, crime media. media.